Today we are going to uh, begin our Advent focus. It's an Advent series, but we're going to do it right out of John's Gospel. If you aren't familiar with Advent, Advent is part of the liturgical, traditional church calendar. And Advent begins four Sundays before Christmas. So it's four weeks leading up to Christmas Eve. Uh, And the word Advent simply means coming. So for the next four Sundays, we're going to prepare our hearts by focusing on the coming of Christ. We're going to do it a little differently. We're going to focus on Jesus as the Savior of the world, because as he comes, he comes as the Savior, not just for Israel, but for all types of people in the world. And we will conclude our Advent series with a Christmas Eve service. Okay, so this is not in your bulletin. I didn't have time to get that in this week for announcements. It'll be in next week's bulletin. It is a Christmas Eve for one hour. We know not everybody can make it. It's okay. But we know that a lot of you celebrate Christmas Eve dinner with your families, and you should. But Christmas Eve, December 24th, 5 p.m. in this room. 5 p.m. to 6 p.m., no more than one hour. No child care. It's meant to be a family service. Babies crying, strollers going around. Uh, and for one hour, okay, as a family. And it's going to be really simple. We're going to sing some Christmas songs. Uh, I'm going to share a short Christmas devotional. But the main focus of our night are going to be two segments of prayer where we are going to pray for the nations. In fact, uh, the other members of the English pastoral team will take turns praying for one of four. So we'll pray for four nations. Okay, so that leads us to our practice. This Advent, rather than focusing on ourselves, which naturally I think we will focus on the needs of our church, our personal needs, uh, Christmas, this season in our society has been uh, consumed with busyness and personal consumption. We want to focus on the nations and focus on the world. So on the back of your bulletin, there's a QR code. And so if you've powered down your phones, you can do this later. Uh, We forgive you if you want to turn on your phone and scan it now. That's fine. Uh, But this is, is, just scan this with your phone camera app. If you don't know how to do it, uh, just ask someone around you after service, and they can help you do it pretty easily. For those of you who are watching at home and you have a digital bulletin, there should be a link that you can click on the digital version of the bulletin, and it will take you to a page that looks a little something like this, okay? Uh, and so this is something, just a prayer commitment, and, and you can choose one of three nations, and next week we will add a fourth nation. You can choose Afghanistan. That's, that's what I wanted to lead us to pray for, uh, but Afghanistan, just because of the state of the church, and the state of the persecuted Christians there, and how, how desperately so many of the people in Afghanistan need the gospel. And we want to pray, I mean, everybody needs the gospel, but we want to pray that the efforts of gospel proclamation would not be silenced. And so, if, so you can pick Afghanistan, then you could select, if you want, either Taiwan or Mongolia, because those are two nations where we are praying and strongly considering ministries where where those will be FCBC Walnut's potential mission partners. And so you might hear about that more in the years to come, but Taiwan and, um, did I say Magnolia? I I meant Mongolia, okay? And, And the fourth one is 
This weekend, our youth went to the OCC Processing Center. I received the news this morning that the boxes that they uh, packed, or just our youth, so the boxes they were working on, every year they'll know which boxes, where, what nations those are going to, but we won't know until they come back and tell us. And this morning, the news was sent to me that it's Ecuador and Peru. So I'll think about it, and we'll pray, and we'll either select both, and it'd be one link, or we will select one, and we'll have that for you as well next week. And once you select it, you just only got to do it once. It's anonymous, okay? You don't put in your name. You, you click select or whatever the button is, and then it'll come up with a simple prayer guide. So whatever nation you select, a prayer guide with some basic prayer points will be there. I encourage you just to take a screenshot or to print it out or however you want to do it, then click submit. Uh, and once you submit it, it will update the form, and each week you'll see uh, something like this. So I'll update this. That one, that's me. Okay? I committed to pray for Afghanistan. Now, some of you are very eager. You're prayer warriors. You want to pray for the whole world. Thank you. Uh, we know you do that anyway. We want to encourage you just to pray for one. And here's why. Yes, you can go back. You can do it four times. And you can pray for all of them. Okay, you can do that. But we want to pray for one because here's what we want you to do. We want you to pray this for the same prayer request through the prayer guide over and over again. You know what the Holy Spirit's going to do? He is going to begin to align your heart with his heart for those particular people. He's going to raise needs that's not on that prayer guide. He might cause you to do more searching and reading. He might link you up through, you know, you start praying, you start searching, you start Googling. You might realize there's an international mission board or Southern Baptist missionary that's in that nation, and you might just go on your own. You might even, I'm not telling you to do this, but maybe, you might even email our mission board and say, hey, how can I pray more? How can I give more? What can I do? You might say, hey, can I go? Once we set up our mission partners, I mean, it'll be the people God has planted the seeds in their hearts. They're going to say, how can I submit? How can I commit to this even more? So we want to begin to see what the Holy Spirit might do. And if you'll notice on our, on our announcements, I'll add one more announcement. Announcement number nine is that there's a global CMC, and that's a Chinese missions conference. So if you're interested in that, uh, to sign up, there's a link. And, and uh, our, our church did purchase, I think, 100 registrations or something like that. There's still room available. And so there is an English program if you're interested, uh, and you can, you can find out more uh, through that link, Okay. So that's how we want to celebrate Advent. And so when we come together, we're going we're gonna to conclude this on Christmas Eve together. We're going to pray for the nations, those four nations or five as a group. And hopefully that will prepare us going into January focused on the nations. Well, the title of our message today from the Gospel of John, and it's an Advent focus, is Joyful Submission. Joyful Submission. You know, Advent is about the coming of Christ. But the story of Advent, told through various biblical metaphors, is also a story of a bridegroom who comes to redeem and rescue his bride. His bride who unknowingly has 
I'm going to use a strong word that the Bible uses, prostituted herself. People don't know that they're enslaved to the great harlot, the Babylon of Revelation 17. Revelation also written by John, the apostle. It is also a story of a good shepherd who calls out and gathers his flock. And how he redeems his flock is this shepherd becomes a lamb who dies. Sinless lamb who dies for his little lambs. Told in so many ways, so many metaphors, it is a story of Christ who comes to redeem his bride and his people. And when you hear the good news, when your eyes are open to the truth, it is not religion. It is not. When you realize that you've been rescued from slavery, it is not, oh man, i got to submit to this religious taskmaster named God. It is a joyful submission as a bride submits to a loving husband who gives his life for her. It is, it is a sheep, a lamb, who realizes that apart from the shepherd, that sheep was going off the cliff, not knowing, or eating poisonous grass. But instead, you realize the joy of your shepherd calling you to green pastures, calling you to living water, and rescuing you from that cliff. We're going to dive in today. John is that type of author. Hopefully that helps you understand John a little bit. If you have God's word, please take it and turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, John chapter 3. And today we're going to look at verses 22 to 36. 22 to 36. The first thing we're going to see is the question of comparison. We see this in, in verses 23 to 24. A question of comparison. I'll give you another moment to turn there in your Bibles. John chapter 3, starting in verses 22 to 24. Question of comparison. Here's what John the Apostle records. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them. Pause right there just for a second. Let me give you a note. The word remain there, the the Greek tense that, that's used means that they remain there for some time. Okay, now let's dive back in to the reading. He remained there with them and was baptizing. Verse 23, John simultaneously was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized. Verse 24, a parenthetical note, and John had not yet been put in prison. Now, I want to begin first by explaining this parenthetical note. Now, John's readers aren't that dense. John, the, uh, the apostle, is simply pointing out the obvious. Of course he's not in prison if he's baptizing. But no, he, John the author, is wanting to, us to understand the timeline of his ministry. 
You see, there's something that John's readers understood that we don't have insight into by a surface reading of the text, is that John's the last gospel to be written. By the time John wrote, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all all in circulation. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all began Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. And so they start telling you about Jesus' public ministry by the time that started, John the Baptist was in prison. So if you didn't know that, there'd be a little bit of a contradiction. So John's simply trying to tell you, hey, I'm, t- I'm writing about earlier events that are not recorded by the first three gospel writers. These are events that happened before John the Baptist was put into prison. That's all he's telling you. He's telling you that there's no confusion There's something about the timeline, just a note. Now, what does that got to do with us as modern-day readers or post-post-modern-day readers? It's simply telling us that we need to do a lot of background work, that there's a lot that's taken for granted, and I, I use this all the time. I mentioned the same illustration last time. Like when I come into Los Angeles and when I say Kobe, you know I'm not talking about beef. You know I'm talking about a basketball player. If I say that illustration 200 years from now, I might have to explain it. Same thing with John. There's a lot that you have to understand about background that his readers, that John could take for granted. He knew his readers understood, but we don't. Okay, so that, that's what we take away from. Now, now, let's move to this debate, right? There's a, there's a comparison there's a comparison. I think I jumped forward too, too quickly. You guys will have to help me up there. My eyes are getting bad. I can't read that back there. So just uh, if I'm reading something else, just afford it for me. Thank you so much. Uh, I love the men and women upstairs. <laughs> now, if, if you notice verse 25, in verse 25 it says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples. Now, this is not John the Apostle. This is John the Baptist which I will refer to him as J.B., okay? So you know that, that John the, the Baptist is J.B., okay? He's not John S., he's not J.S., John the Sprinkler, okay? He's John the Baptist because that's why he needed to be where there's a lot of water because he actually baptized people. He was Baptist. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and Jews over purification. Now, verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. <clears throat> so nothing is said about the identity of this certain Jew. So there's this Jew that goes to J.B.'s disciples and, and is debating something, raising a question of comparison and contrast. And further, we aren't told too many details about purification. we got to use a lot of context. So are they debating over Jewish cleansing rituals? Did this certain Jew see baptism as a type of purification? I think, we aren't told, but I think if you use the context, you can infer. And here's what you have to understand. The discussion in verse 25 triggers the question in verse 26. Let me, let me say that again. The debate in verse 25 triggers the concern in verse 26. So verse 26 tells us that whatever 
this discussion over purification was that it caused the effect of John the Baptist, JB's disciples, to go to John, and they came and said immediately, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, that Jesus guy, look what he's doing. He's baptizing, and everyone's going to him. Let me put that in everyday language. The guy, pastor, that you were fellowshipping with, he planted a church in right there. And everyone's going to his church. Comparison, contrast. Competition of two ministries. Consider the context. You have two baptisms have, happening at the same time. John already told that, right? That Jesus, in verse 22, he's with his disciples, and they're baptizing. They're not just, it's not just come and go. They remain there for a while. Verse 23, John also, key word, was baptizing. You have two baptisms happening at the same time, but one happens to be more successful. Jesus's. <clears throat> now, we're not told what the certain Jew says, but can you give me some permission to use context to read some inference? What if this certain Jew came to John JB's disciples and said, why is it that it seems like your rabbi's baptism is decreasing and Jesus' baptism is increasing? What if, and I'm just guessing, what if John the Baptist said to his disciples, yeah, I must decrease, he must increase. What if this certain Jew came and they're debating about purification and what if that purification question went like this and I'm just reading into the text if you'll give me the liberty of inference based on context what if they said this how come it seems like your rabbi JB's baptism is it is it that his baptism doesn't purify but Jesus's baptism purifies wasn't JB the one that came preaching earlier in John 1, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Takes away sin. What's another way to say that? Purification. So, is it too much for us without it being written here to say that maybe that's what John the Baptist said to his disciples? I'm pointing you towards the Lamb. The people are going to the Lamb. The flock is going to the shepherd. You've got to connect the dots in John to understand a little bit. Now this leads us to how he actually responds. Point number two is the response of joyful submission. So first thing is you see the comparison, right? A question of comparison. But Point number two, we see the response of joyful submission. Now, JB, look with me now at verse 27. And again, I'm going to use JB so you're not confused which John this is. JB answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ. 
But I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Rejoice at the voice. It rhymes, it sounds good. Rejoice at the voice. Rejoice at the voice. Don't forget that. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. Now, so there are four ways that John responds. Four things that categorizes the response of J.B. And it's all joyful. First, J.B. understood the stewardship of spiritual authority. He understood that his ability to gather disciples and to gain a following, that it was given to him from God, that it was part of God's plan. John was a man under heavenly authority. When you give someone power, especially spiritual power, and when they forget who gave them that power, there's a danger of spiritual abuse, spiritual authority, or pride. And then it does lead to a comparison of ministries, a competition of ministries, and even men in the name of Jesus Christ and the gospel making their own kingdom. That's when we forget, when we forget who our king is. This holds true whether you are a paid Christian worker or whether you are a volunteer. That all authority is given us. We have the authority of Christ. We have the authority of his word. And we have spiritual gifts that are given to be exercised under the guidance and authority of the Holy Spirit. Yes, I confess to you, we all fail. There are times where I step into the pulpit and I forget the simple prayer. Holy Spirit, help me to preach the word that you inspired. Will you speak through me? Just a simple loss or, or forgetting of coming under submission that we are stewards of the word of God. We always have to recalibrate all of our ministry, remembering that any success that we experience, anything that we do, we have to know that we are stewarding spiritual authority and power. And John the Baptist understood he had followers, but it was because Jesus initially said, hey, I'm going to loan these followers to you. Will you prepare them for me? And when I come, will you drive them back to me? How often do we forget that? Make disciples of who? Jesus, in Jesus' power. And when Jesus comes, you point them back to Jesus. This leads to the second, the second sub-point. JB understood his identity and his mission. Verse 28 is very clear. He understood his vehicle. He was a vehicle. He was a Toyota. Okay, he was a forerunner, right? He understood that, that he was to point people to Jesus. He was, he says, I am not the Christ. I am the forerunner of Christ. I know my identity and I know my mission. I know who I am. I'm not the Christ. And I know my mission. I'm here to prepare hearts for Jesus. He preached the gospel of repentance because he knew that someone would bring the true and better gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of the Messiah. And he was the first person to preach in the New Testament, the Advent. Right? He says, Christ is coming, and when he comes, 
I want my disciples to recognize him. He, he didn't want his disciples to, to be about him. JB says it's not about me. In fact, the character of his discipleship was to point people and his disciples to prepare them to recognize Christ. And that's why when the bride comes, I mean, when the bridegroom comes, he's like, don't you hear his voice? That's who I'm preparing you for. We must come to understand both our identity in Christ and our mission for Christ. Sometimes we get overeager. Or sometimes we get discouraged when we don't get the win. As Baptists, what is our win? Conversion. And then baptism. You can convert them, but we need to get them underwater. Right? You go to Southern Baptist conferences, how many conversions, that's one thing, but how many baptisms? And sometimes it becomes a competition. How many baptisms? We had 200 baptisms this year or in these five years or something like that, right? Keep in mind, let me ask you a question. How many people did John the Baptist actually win, convert as Christians? I don't know, but I think zero. And Jesus says, this is the greatest man John the Baptist preached repentance before the gospel was complete. John the Baptist didn't actually convert people to salvation. He pointed to Jesus. He pointed people to Jesus so that Jesus could save them. Yes, post-resurrection, some of us will have the joy of leading people to conversion. But if you learn anything from John the Baptist, it's we need to know our role. Some of us will lead people to Christ. Others of us will simply point people to Christ. But all of us are given the great commission to point people to Christ with our words and with our lives. And we recognize that it's the Holy Spirit who converts people. John the Baptist, J.B., understood his identity. He understood his mission, point people to Jesus. Thirdly, J.B. rejoiced over the voice of the bridegroom. You know, there's so much going on in this world that sometimes we don't hear the voice of the bridegroom. He understood the voice of the bridegroom. Understand the flesh is real. You need to understand that J.B. was a sinner just like you and I. J.B. was not perfect. He was fallen as well. Recognize the temptation. It doesn't matter how holy you are, the temptation comes. When people come to you and says, and they begin to ask you, hey, when are you preaching? We love to come hear you preach. What do you say? You can be falsely humble, but inside it feels good. When people compare and they come to you and say, why is everybody going to that person? Your human nature says, I got a comparison, comparison. Social media does that really well for you. Look what they have. Look what they're experiencing. Look what they're eating. Look what they're enjoying. Why can't you have it? Don't be fooled for a moment that JB didn't have to fight off that temptation. But instead, where did JB come from? JB is a voice coming out of the wilderness. He had learned the spiritual discipline of fasting 
That means he trained himself to battle the flesh. Secondly, in the wilderness, it gets pretty quiet. He trained himself to hear the voice of God. And so when his disciples are coming to him with temptation of comparison, he could navigate and say, no, 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 I still hear the voice of my shepherd. I hear the voice of my lamb. And I've been telling you, behold, the voice of the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I've been preparing you for Him. Get behind me, Satan. Now is my finest hour. My finest hour is to fade away and to point you to say, look, the bridegroom is here. He uses an illustration that if you get this wrong, it seems pretty ridiculous. Have you ever been to a wedding where the best man makes the entire event all about him? I have never. I've never been to a wedding where the best man takes the mic and starts praising himself. And that's the illustration. And he says... He, he sees himself as the friend of the groom. And he's like, I, the bride belongs to the groom. Not me. I mean, to the bridegroom, right? Not me. I'm here to celebrate my friend's wedding. I'm here to even encourage my friend. who This is his day. That's his bride. I'm here to help him. I'm here to help him. And so John the Baptist uses that illustration that he's the best man at Jesus' wedding. Now that illustration of a marriage, that illustration of a groom and the bride, for John's readers, they would have immediately thought of Isaiah chapter 54. They would have thought of Isaiah 62. They would have thought of Hosea chapter 2. They would have also thought of Jeremiah you don't need to write those down. Because in the Old Testament, the faithful remnant of Israel was often described as a bride of God. And the sinful, rebellious Israelites who yoked themselves to idolatry was sometimes compared to a prostitute or a harlot. In Revelation 21, verse 9, now, John the Apostle, J.A., not Adonde, okay? J.A., John the Apostle. Some of you watch ESPN, right? Okay. You guys are dead this morning, all right? Too much turkey, too much sticky rice. <laughs> all right, Revelation 21, 9, also written by, by John the Apostle, J.A., right? He, he, he sees Christ, he hears Christ saying, come. Right, the angel says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. I'll connect these dots for you later. But remember, so J.A. and J.B., two separate people. J.A. recording J.B.'s ministry. Remember J.B., behold the lamb of God. Now he recognizes the lamb of God. And he illustrates it, J.B. does, through a marriage. Revelation 21, 9, come, 
I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So here John the Baptist rejoices at the arrival of the bridegroom. I am not sure, I am not certain that J.B. understood the New Testament idea of the church as the bride of Christ. I'm not sure if he understood that. But we are 110% certain that John's readers understood this parallel. That by the time they received John's gospel and John's letters and revelation, oh, and might I add, John the apostle did not write Ephesians. Paul did. But where was John the apostle stationed later in his life for ministry? Ephesus. So all these themes coming together of the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world and the Bride of Christ and Christ laying down His life for His Bride and one day He's gathering His Bride. God forbid anybody would get in between Jesus calling His Bride to Himself and to try to put a wedge between the wife of Jesus, metaphorically, and Jesus. And so John understands that. That leads to the fourth sub-point. That's why J.B. elevated Christ over himself. He says, I am the best man. I will not get in between Jesus and his bride. And he says, therefore, this joy of mine is complete. He's done. He says, my ministry is done. Jesus is here. It's all about him. And he says in verse 30, he must increase. I must decrease. In other words, Christ must be magnified. I must fade into the background. In fact, John the Baptist, JB, is much more like Christ than we read about here because when he gets to prison, you know, he gets in prison and he gets martyred. He gets killed. His entire life was simply to point people to Christ and to die a martyr for pointing people to Christ. This leads us to point number three. Now, in point number three, much of verses 31 to 36 is repetitive of earlier sections of John 3. So what we see are the reasons for joyful submission. There are three reasons. I'm going to give it to you super quick because I want to get to some bigger themes and a little bit of application. The only difference that you should write down is that in verses 13 to 21, Jesus was speaking. In verses 13 to 21, you have J.A., John the Apostle, recording the, the, the teaching of Jesus. But here in verses 31 to 36, at the end of chapter 3, you have John the Apostle, the author, speaking or writing, to be more exact. And so if you've ever written an essay where you have an introductory paragraph, then you have your argument in paragraphs 1, 2, and 3, or 2, 3, and 4, I'm sorry, and then your final paragraph is your conclusion where you repeat all the main points. That's what John, the author, the apostle, is doing. And so he's repeating the same things that we've preached through 
in the last two to three weeks. But there are three. I'll give them to you by way of summative review. First, in verses 31 and 32, you see that he says Jesus is from above and above all. So verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is, is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. So we saw this taught earlier by Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes from heaven, so he can speak of heavenly things. When it speaks of earthliness, it speaks of our human limitation. We don't understand heavenly things. So he who comes from heaven is Jesus. He's above all. He has authority over all. And because he's from above, he gives witness to things from above. We need to listen to him. Otherwise, we're spiritually blind because we're earthly, right? So that echoes the earlier teaching. Secondly, it says Jesus comes with full authority and power. We see this in verses 34 and 35. So first verse 34, he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. So Jesus is the son of God. He is the word of God become flesh. He speaks authoritatively. He gives the spirit without measure. Right? Why is Jesus given the spirit without measure? It's because Jesus is sinless. He has perfect eternal fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So he has endless and perfect sinless access to the power of the Spirit. Verse 35, it says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. All things refers to Jesus' supremacy over all things on earth. Jesus will reign over the entire earth. Now, this clues you into something. Jesus joyfully, the Son joyfully submitted to the Father because he understood that it was through submission that he would inherit this authority over all things but also he was fully secure in submitting to his father because he had already been given all things a lot of theology there that we won't unpack this morning right but thirdly so second jesus comes with full authority and power thirdly is is that our response to jesus bears eternal consequences we see this first in verse 33 then you skip down to the final verse verse 36 first Verse 33, repeating earlier teaching, whoever receives the testimony of Jesus sets his seal to this, that God is true. The seal of, is an ancient signet ring. It's a stamp of authenticity and certification. So basically it's saying if you receive the testimony of Jesus, it's like signing a document and sealing and saying, I believe this to be true. I certify that Jesus is Messiah. And then in verse 36, repeating last week's John 3.16, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So we explained the concept of whoever last week, referring to all people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, but believe. The word believe means to actively entrust your heart towards an object. And this is where I want to land today. Believe is spiritual warfare. I want you to consider that. Believe is not just mental 
ascent into knowledge, but if Satan can convince you that that's what it means to be a Christian, that's pretty good. If he can simply say, look, you live your life however you want to, but if you can add plus this, just believe that Jesus died and resurrected, if you just believe that good message, you'll go to heaven and not to hell. That doesn't really change your life. It's just here in your head. So if someone says on a survey, are you a Christian? You might check yes because you simply believe that, but that belief hasn't changed you, then you're still on the wrong path. But Satan can convince you that you're on the right path. In order for that belief to take on flesh, there has to be a joyful submission of your entire life, and the product of that submission is simply the gospel applied you must increase, you must decrease, I must decrease, he must increase. To a point of discipleship where your entire life becomes about Christ and not yourselves. You begin to understand this when you understand what the shepherd wants to do. If you see yourself responding to your shepherd, thinking that you are a lamb who doesn't really need a shepherd, but you'll take it, and you'll say, okay, you know what, maybe the shepherd can lead me the right way, but I think I'm pretty good, then you haven't understood the metaphor that we are helpless sheep. We need a shepherd. John the Baptist understood this. We can't help but to consider the parallel between the voice of the bridegroom calling his bride to John chapter 10, which John is going to show us later. I put the passage on the screen for you. Let me read you portions of John 10. John 10. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. Lots of voices calling for your attention in our distracted word. But the true sheep hear his voice. He calls on his own sheep by name. Not just a general call. Who wants the gospel? But he begins to call you by name. And leads them out. Of what? I'll show you later. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him. Why? For they know his voice. JB rejoices at the voice of the bridegroom. He rejoices at the voice of the shepherd. He was in the wilderness. He understood the voice of God. He could hear the voice of the shepherd calling his sheep. And so he tells his disciples, stop comparing me. Go. The reason why my ministry is decreasing and his ministry is increasing is because the people going to Jesus, they recognize the voice of the shepherd calling them. J.B. understood redemptive history. He knew what was happening. He says that's what's happening. The shepherd has come and he's calling his sheep. And that's why they're going. So whenever I see a church growing or whenever I see people truly being discipled and I see ministries increasing, I know 
if those are true disciples, I know what's happening. That the Spirit is moving. The sheep are responding to the call of their shepherd. And we just point people to Christ. Verse 14 of John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Let me stop there and say once again that the good shepherd becomes a lamb and dies for his sheep to make them his own. I am the good shepherd. Now let's keep reading. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. He becomes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? And verse 16, I have other sheep. That's us. I have other sheep outside of Israel, outside of Jesus' 12 disciples, minus Judas, minus Judas, plus Matthias, right? I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Do you hear the voice of your shepherd call out to you this morning through the noise of social media and society and postmodernism and every other voice? And the strongest voice, the voice of yourself. You must increase. That's the voice of the world. You must increase. You need comfort. You need personal happiness. You need things your way. You need to be served. You need more. You need more. You need more. You need to be on top. You need more money. That's the strongest voice that gets in the way of the gentle voice of the shepherd saying, come. Come to me. I'm calling. Bridegroom is calling his bride. Now let me connect the dots for you. John chapter 1, verse 29. The beginning of John, right? JB. JB says, Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. In our passage today, they're debating over purification. Purification takes away the sins of the world. You have the theme of the Lamb of God. Second, you have the voice of the bridegroom, John 3, 29. JB rejoices at the arrival of Christ, who is also the good shepherd, the Lamb of God, and the bridegroom. All these metaphors coming alive. Thirdly, John 10, the voice of the good shepherd. Jesus is our good shepherd. Because what? Because he became a lamb to die for his sheep. He became a lamb to die in the place of his flock. Fourth, the bride, the wife of the lamb. When do you get this? Later, from the same author of John, Revelation 21.9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. All these dots connecting. Next week, you, you see the theme of water. Living water. Then you see the theme of, I am the bread of life. Why? Because bread is not just meant to be eaten, it's meant to be digested. Taken in. Becoming flesh. It keeps going and going and going. Metaphor after metaphor, scene after scene. Unpacking in everyday language, meaning you need a shepherd. You need, you need a bridegroom. You need water. You need bread. All about Jesus, the voice of the bridegroom calling his bride. Here's the big idea. Whoever responds to the voice of Christ with joyful submission 
will become like him where personal decrease leads to Personal decrease leads to eternal. I know it's 12.02, so that's what they're telling me. They're turning off the mic. You've got to be done. Like, you've got to be done, Pastor. You know, in and out's open today. Chick-fil-A's closed. I'm going to ask you, because of Lord's Supper Week, I'm going to ask you for extra time. I want to go into Revelation a little more. I mentioned that whoever responds to the voice of Christ with joyful submission... I want you to see why, once your eyes are opened, it's a joyful submission. I want you to see what that voice is battling against. When you understand what you're being saved from, you will grow wise. Joyful submission in application is freedom that requires spiritual eyes to see. The devil wants you to hear another false gospel. You must increase. God must decrease to the point of secularism and atheism. He, God must decrease to the point of non-existence. Or you can be a Christian, but God doesn't really exist in your life. And here's the voice of the devil. If you give more to Jesus and God, your, your money, your time, your life, he's going to take your freedom. He will enslave you to rules and religion. Don't you want freedom? It's all about you. I want you to consider that the world's idea of freedom is actually prostitution to sin. I didn't say that. John said that. Not John MacArthur, John the Apostle. Look at John 17. I want you to see this. How can you not the Lamb, the Bride, same author. Revelation 17 talks about the Antichrist's future kingdom, typified through many anti-Christian kingdoms throughout world history. Chapter 18 talks about the beast, the Antichrist, and his kingdom. Chapter 19 of Revelation, the Lamb, the Bridegroom, comes back defeats the beast, gathers his bride, and Revelation 20 establishes his kingdom. You have the tale of two kingdoms, the tale of two different types of brides. You have the harlot of the world and Satan, which people don't know that they're prostitutes to Satan, and you have the bride of Christ, people who have been redeemed and rescued rescued and they know that so there's a joyful submission revelation 17 1 to 2 then one of the seven angels who had seven bulls came and said to me come i will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk john's original readers would have understood that Rome sat on many waters, that this was a symbol of the Rome, the anti-Christian kingdom of their time, the, 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 the kingdom that persecuted Christians. The great prostitute was Rome. And later on, because Jesus would come back to defeat this great prostitute, we know that it's not Rome as the full 
fulfillment. The fulfillment would be the Antichrist future kingdom. But it's typified through Rome. It's typified through Antichrist-like secular kingdoms today. With whom the kings of the earth had committed sexual immorality. That means that worldly leaders and worldly people have given in and benefited through worldliness. So, you are either the part of the bride of Christ or unknowingly, sadly, you don't know. You're part of the harlot to Satan. But do you hear the voice of the bridegroom calling you this morning saying, you think you will find joy in this world. I'm calling you to submit. And that sounds bad. When you read Ephesians, not written by John by Paul, and when it says, wives, submit to your husbands, it sounds like subjugation in 2021, but it's not when you understand that the husband is Christ who dies for his wife and, and wants everything for her good and her flourishing. And when you go to Revelation 21.9, it's the same context, right? The one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and says, it says, come, come and see the bride. But I want you to see what happens when Jesus returns. Because he's still doing this right now. He hasn't returned yet. When Jesus returns, it's going to be too late. Revelation 19.7 to 8. It says, look at the themes. Joyful submission. Rejoice at the voice. Rejoice at the voice. Rejoice at the voice. Which voice is loudest in your heart and your mind? You, the world, or Christ this morning? What do you rejoice in? Whose voice? Revelation 19, 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's what Jesus is doing right now. He's going to do it in Afghanistan. They're trying to put a chokehold on the gospel. And he's still calling his bride. And his bride will recognize through the darkness of Islam, they will recognize the voice of their shepherd, Jesus Messiah. People in Mongolia, doesn't matter if they're in the rural parts, they will recognize and they will come to the New Jerusalem. They will hear the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the shepherd. People in Taiwan, secular society, they will hear the voice of the bridegroom. People in, in Ecuador and in Peru, they will hear the voice of the bridegroom. You are worried about your children, concerned about your grandchildren. They will hear, they who the shepherd call, they will hear the voice of the bridegroom. Because that's what's happening. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Verse 8, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright. And what was the debate about? It says pure here, purification. Let me read you the final verse. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. JB's disciples. Rabbi, 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 rabbi. We had this debate over purification. Is it because, why are they going to him? Why are they going to him? Why are they going to Is it because his purification is better than ours? Is it because he's better? 
Why is our ministry decreasing and his ministry increasing? <laughs> and John says, because the bridegroom is making his bride ready. They rejoice at the voice. I rejoice at the voice. It's because Jesus brings purification. Here's what John understood. And I, I don't know if John wrote this, John, John the Baptist anywhere, but John the Baptist would recognize his, bapti his baptism doesn't actually purify people. And it wasn't Jesus's baptism that purifies people. Baptism is an act for who? Believers. That means whoever Jesus baptized, he already, he purified them. He would go to the cross and die for them. So Jesus baptizes people who are purified. So post-resurrection, anyone who is baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, it is because they've been purified. So Jesus was saving people, and John the Baptist recognized all of this. So I'll leave you once again with a question and the big idea. Who is calling you this morning? Do you hear the voice of your bridegroom? Do you hear the voice of the lamb, your good shepherd? Whoever responds to the voice of Christ with joyful submission will become like him, where personal decrease leads to eternal increase. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this Advent, and we prepare our hearts to remember and celebrate your coming because you came to rescue us from that harlot, from being part of the harlot of this world. We, we don't know. We were unknowing of it. Lord, we have family and friends who don't know you yet. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would save them, that would, you would use us to point them to you. Lord, we pray, Lord, that this Advent season, that you would direct our hearts away from ourselves, that we must decrease, and the nations, people do, who don't know you in the nations, that our focus on them would increase our recognition of your heartbeat and your voice in this world. Lord, we love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.